Please join me in the prayer for God to illumine our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, verse 10, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen to God's word for us. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim it to the, to it, the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? The Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head and to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush, and so it withered. <coughs> when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. <coughs> but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you were concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's New Testament reading comes from the 20th chapter of Matthew, verses 1 through 16. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. This is Jesus speaking. For the kingdom of heaven 
is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you what is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then, then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, They grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will, will be first, and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. William Sloan Coffin is best known for serving as the pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. Before his time at Riverside, Coffin served as the chaplain of students at Yale University. One of the tasks as the chaplain was to write letters of recommendation for seniors applying to graduate school. Every year he would write letters to the dean of admissions of schools like Columbia Law or Harvard Medical. In his recommendation letters, Coffin would often write something sort of like this. This student will undoubtedly be in the bottom quarter of the class. But surely you will agree with me that the bottom quarter should be just as carefully selected as the top. What would you be looking for in the bottom quarter if not all the sterling extracurricular qualities so eminently embodied in this candidate. Coffin would then go on to say how conscientious and caring this student was. Now, almost every time a student read Coffin's letter of recommendation, their feelings would be hurt. How do you know I'm going to be in the bottom quarter of the class? They would ask him. Well, the evidence is in, isn't it? Coffin would answer, well, yeah, but you didn't have to tell them. Never mind the student was graduating from Yale. 
Never mind the student was somewhere in the 99th percentile of all college students in the nation. Never mind that Coffin had said they were an amazing human being. They were upset with him because he hadn't placed them at the front of the line. We all operate each and every day within a system that is predicated on the idea of winners and losers. It is a system of scarcity, not abundance, where there is only so much to go around and where you get more if you do more and do it better than everybody else. In this kingdom, in this realm, in this reality, Competition is seen as a good thing, a great thing, a necessary thing, because competition motivates people, motivates us to do our best by rewarding those who come out on top. And so we, we compete with other people to get what we want, what we deserve. We wish the rules of the game were different, but this is just the way the world works, sure, God loves us all, and grace is real, yeah, but let's be honest. People get what they deserve. We reap what we sow. Today's parable, in my estimation, is a collision. A collision between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Both are at hand, and they are bashing against one another in the story it's a collision between two incompatible worldviews. And the kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us, is like a landowner who goes out early in the morning to hire some day laborers to work in his vineyard. After a couple of hours, he head back, heads back out again to hire a few more, and this pattern continues throughout the day, right up until closing time. You know the story, when the workday is done, the landowner does something strange and unexpected. He pays the late arrivals the same wage as those who have worked all day and borne the heat and toil. Instead of rewarding those who worked harder and longer and more faithfully, he treats all the workers the same. And when those who were hired first catch wind of this boondoggle, they get angry, really really angry, wouldn't we all? Over the past decade, as our nation has, I think, struggled, all people are struggling to make sense of painful realities like generational poverty, demographically skewed incarceration rates, and a disproportionate amount of police violence directed against people of color. As we all struggle with these things to figure out the hows and the whys and what we can do to fix it, there's been a lot of talk out there about the systemic nature of things. Terms like systemic inequality, systemic racism, and systemic injustice have become a part of the common everyday vernacular. Now those who study systems theory and who make the case for the systemic nature of institutions believe that over time there are practices and beliefs that become so embedded in institutions that people become blind to their presence until they experience injustice because they're there. For full disclosure, shocking, I'm sure, I am a believer in the power of systems to override, to trump good intentions 
an individual's desire to do good or evil. This is one of the reasons I am so passionate about the church as a witness in the world. I believe systems have more power than individuals do. When communities of faith come together and align their practices and beliefs with the teachings of Jesus, they can affect real, lasting change, both within their community of faith and in the world they are called to serve. We are more just, more compassionate, more faithful, more impactful when we come together than we ever can be on our own. Systems have power, which is why those who benefit from them and those who don't are so strident in their desires to uphold them or reform them. Now, to be honest, I also believe in the power of embedded systemic patterns because of what I have experienced in my own personal journey of faith and in my 20 years of ministry. I went into ministry, I went into the faith, thinking that when I, when others witnessed God's radical, all-inclusive mercy, their initial response, my initial response to God's mercy would be joy and thanksgiving. Early on in my life, I was naive to the resistance of grace that would be expressed by those who benefit from the way the game is currently played. Well, not anymore. From personal experience in my own journey of faith and ministry in congregations like this one, I now know that before there is an acceptance, there is almost always a resistance to the systemic mercy embedded within the kingdom of God. In the projects of L.A., there is this church. It was a church that decided to open its doors to homeless immigrants during the week. Every night, homeless and undocumented workers would sleep in the church's cushioned pews. On Sundays, the priests and some of the dedicated women of the church would arrive really early and do everything they could to eliminate the smell that the men left behind. They'd sprinkle Love My Carpet all over the floor and then vacuum like crazy, They'd spray Lysol everywhere they could. They'd light scented candles and put bowls of potpourri in strategic locations. Nothing worked. The smell persisted. And church being church, people grumbled. They complained. Finally, in worship, one day the priest decided to face the problem head on. During a sermon, he asked the congregation, what does our church smell like? People were absolutely mortified. Eye contact ceased. Women started searching their purses for who knows what. Men pulled out their cell phones to look at scores. Come on, the priest pressed on. What does it smell like in here? Finally, an old guy who never really cared what people thought about him anyway shouted out, It smells like feet. Pretty honest. Exactly, the priest replied. And why does it smell like feet? Because homeless men slept here last night. A woman answered, Why did we let that happen? asked the priest. It's what we committed to do, said someone else. And why would we commit to do that? asked the priest. Because it's what Jesus would do, someone said. Well then, the priest asked again, What does the church smell like now? It smells like commitment, 
one man called out. It smells like love, shouted another. It smells like roses, someone said. The systemic mercy that's embedded within God's kingdom is laid bare in this parable of the vineyard. And our response to its message tells us a lot about where we currently are on our particular journey of faith. Let me be clear about one thing. If you do not at some level resist the way God distributes grace, you have not yet accepted or bumped up against the mercy, the radical mercy embedded in God's kingdom. If you are not offended, I'm offended, if you're not offended in some way by the fact that God refuses to play favorites, even with those who have toiled and worked their entire adult lives in the vineyard, then you have not yet accepted the forgiveness, the unjust forgiveness embedded in our faith. To, to turn the world upside down, to give hope to the hopeless, to, to fix all that is broken, to give everyone what they need to thrive. We have to change the rules of the game. We have to replace this faulty operational system that says there are winners and losers, those who are in and out. We have to replace that faulty operational system with a new one that says with God in the mix, there's enough for everyone. And as the life and the ministry of Jesus shows us, the only way to do that, the only way to change the game, is to embed mercy into the very fabric of our lives. It's a brilliant move, this choice of God to give the last laborers as much as the first. It really does overturn the apple cart by forcing us to move from a mindset of competition to one of compassion. But this choice by God does come with a cost. It makes some people angry. And the ones who are angry in the story aren't those who were standing around idle all day because no one invited them to work. The ones who are angry are the ones who were most affected by the radical generosity of the vineyard owner. It was those who had been striving to earn their place, those who had donated their time and energy to the cause, those who had worked hard to establish traditions and patterns to support the vineyard and the owner. My friend Amy has this really annoying habit. Maybe you have a friend like this too. She disregards the rules of games. It drives me crazy. Monopoly, chess, hearts, poker, scrabble, sorry, it doesn't matter. Amy never plays to win. She just plays to have fun. When given a chance to crush her opponent, she gives them what they need to stay in the game. She'll pass cards under the table. When given the chance to end the game with a roll of the dice, she'll skip her turn, make some excuse why she has to go or do something else incredibly stupid. Now, for years, I thought Amy did all, the, all this because she didn't care about who won or lost the game. Then one day, for some odd reason, she was having a bad day, I think, Amy took the game we were playing very seriously. And as she crushed me, <laughs> I realized Amy disregarded the rules of the game, not because she didn't care, 
She played every game with a healthy level of indifference towards the rules because she was incredibly, incredibly competitive. And the only way she could avoid being overwhelmed by her competitive spirit was to ignore the rules altogether and just enjoy the company of her friends. It is human nature, I believe, to get angry when God shows as much compassion to the last as to the first. The systemic pattern of mercy embedded in God's kingdom is infuriating when it prevents you from getting what you deserve and gives to others what they have not earned. I get it. It frustrates me too. But there is some good news embedded in this story. Once we stop playing the game by that old set of rules, once we accept that God is generous beyond all reason, beyond all logic, once we accept that, we discover that all those latecomers and stragglers and people who get more than they deserve, they are the ones who teach us those of us who've been striving and straining and working, they are the ones who teach us about the breadth and the depth of God's redeeming love. Will Campbell, a dissident Southern Baptist preacher, likes to tell the story about talking to a high-wire artist in a traveling circus, inquiring as to why he did what he did. It's a fair question. The man's answers included all the expected romanticized vignettes, I love the circus life. I love the laughter and the applause of the crowd. I love the thrill of hurtling through space. But then Campbell remembers the man said something unexpected. You really want to know why I go up there on that damn thing night after night? I would have quit a long time ago. But my sister is up there, and my wife and my father are up there, and my sister has more trouble than Job, and my wife is a devil-may-care nut, and my old man is getting older. If I wasn't up there with them, some bad night, man, smash. But why are they up there? Campbell asked the man. The man looked like he didn't really want to answer the question, But as he walked away, he said, because I drink too much. What if this is how we saw church? As a place where every latecomer, every straggler, every one of us who stumbles in, presents those of us who are already here with an opportunity to embody God's grace and welcome. What if instead of comparing ourselves to other people, guilty, (laughs) what if we saw ourselves as indebted to them for giving us the opportunity to extend, to share God's mercy and love? What if we accepted the systemic mercy embedded in God's kingdom and let go of any anger we might feel at the inclusion of those who receive the same wage for a fraction of the work? After all, all of us, each and every one of us, are up on that wire. Life everlasting, true forgiveness, peace, purpose, 
a second chance. These are all gifts only God can give, and they are gifts no one can earn. And the first recipient of these gifts is no better than the last, and the last is no better than the first. God doesn't play by our rules. God's love is not earned, it is given. We are all subject to the systemic mercy embedded in the kingdom of God. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.